And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth's, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of the Lord. Well, about two dozen of us this weekend uh, got to enjoy a, a collaborative communication retreat, which we've been talking to you about. And Perhaps we'll offer it again and more of you can go. And Essentially, uh, the retreat plus a 10-week small group is a way of just taking Philippians 2, that beautiful passage about the incarnation and learning how to love well and, and kind of working it into our listening and our relationships and uh, extraordinarily powerful, powerful time. One of the things that uh, Lisa had us do, Lisa Murray, member of our church, led, led it along with another man, Ferlin McGaskey, and one of the things that he, she had us do is talk about what fears and hopes we have as we start the retreat. And we, we kind of went over those the first night. It was interesting. Almost everybody had a fear of, of vulnerability, um, of, of uh, maybe saying a little bit too much. And I was thinking about that. Why, why do we fear vulnerability? There are good reasons to fear vulnerability. But one of the reasons we fear vulnerability is because of shame. We don't want to be exposed. There are parts of ourselves we're not comfortable with. We're not sure that we'll be accepted if if we let you know. For some reason, I've been thinking a lot about that as I've been having conversations with you this summer. Shame has come up a lot. And so when I was reading this story, it it occurred to me there are a lot of ways to read biblical stories. One of the ways to read the story, it's 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 an illustration of how God heals shame. And we'll look at that tonight. And one of the, the ways I kind of was clued into this, I've, I've started paying more attention to biblical names 
uh, and it, it's kind of fun to do and look them up. Sometimes you get like a little Holy Spirit clue about what the story's about. The name Mephibosheth, which Sandy did a tremendous job pronouncing <laughs> over and over and over again, uh, means shame no more. And so when I saw that, I thought, huh, this is a story about how God heals shame. The storyline is, is uh, pretty easy to follow. David has made a promise to his uh, dear friend Jonathan that he would care for his family even after Jonathan, a member of the house of Saul, has fallen and the Saul house has been driven out of power. David promised he'd care for Jonathan's family forever. And if David asks, is there anyone around who I can practice that promise to? And they find this young man, uh, Mephibosheth, who is up in a, in a part of the country um, called Lodabar, which literally means no pasture land. And it's part of the Transjordan. It's up north uh, near Galilee, down near the, the sea. And it's a very barren area. And evidently what had happened is the few people who were remaining uh, of Saul's descendants, when David came into power, they went into exile and, and lived up in this remote, barren, desert kind of place. And so David finds him, brings him in, gives him grace, extends resources, welcomes him into the king's family. The church has often read this story as, as a picture of grace, a parable of the gospel. Uh, there's a wonderful quote uh, by uh, Robert Barron, uh, if we could find that and put that up. Um, uh, we'll get to that one in a, in a second. Classical Christian tradition, both Protestant and Catholic, teaches that salvation cannot be merited or earned through the exertions of the will, and that human beings stand before God in a state of sin and helplessness. We are dead dogs, in the words of Mephibosheth, but we have received an amazing grace from the God who condescended to invite us into his household and to share the treasury of his intimacy and regard. Mephibosheth was hid in fear of the king. Likewise, we sinners alienated from God by our own refusal to accept the divine love conceal ourselves from God as Adam and Eve hid themselves in the underbrush of Eden after the original sin. But David didn't wait for Mephibosheth to come to him or impress him with a show of loyalty. Rather, he sought out the young, misshapen man and made him a member of the royal company. In our case, God does not expect us to earn our way into his friendship but rather offers that friendship as a sheer gift, even to us who are misshapen by sin. Well, Mephibosheth is a symbol of shame in this story. He's a picture, and of course, we're to see ourselves in him. We're to read this kind of like Pilgrim's Progress, and we're pilgrims. So Mephibosheth symbolizes all of us, that the sense in which we're all crippled, and think for a moment what being crippled meant in, in that culture. Uh, it's the, the, the Hebrew word means the condition of being unable or imperfectly able to walk, which unfitted any descendant of Aaron so afflicted for service in the priesthood. So in the Old Testament culture, first of all, it meant you, you could not lead the people of God in worship. It rendered an animal unsuitable for sacrifice And the offering of animals so blemished was one of the sins with which Malachi charges the negligent Jews of his time. So imagine, in that culture, 
you are crippled, you know that in some way you are second class, that something's wrong with you. Um, There's a lot of symbolism there. You can't walk. You can't access resources. You're dependent on others. If you've been in two-thirds world's countries, often cripples stand by the sidewalks or sit on the sidewalks day and night. It's just a pitiful sight, and there's a lot of social shame. Um, He's living in exile, this idea of no pasture land, no resources. It's kind of a barren wilderness. He's not in community. He's part of the losing team, right? I mean, his dad got killed in battle. Uh, He's cut off from the king. He calls himself a dead dog. Uh, And in that culture, a dog was about the lowest thing you could be, about the only thing you could be that would be lower than a dog. A dead dog. So he is really a picture of shame. And now, if we can go back to that quote, and I misspelled the... It's not Brent Brown. It's a Brene Brown. Um, uh, this is her definition. Sorry about that. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of acceptance and belonging. Let me read that again. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of acceptance and belonging. Now, just real quickly, we're not talking about guilt. Guilt is different. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7.10, there's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, but there's a worldly sorrow that leads to death. Guilt is when you have broken covenant with God, you've done something against yourself or someone else or the planet or God that's wrong, and you feel bad about it, and that leads you to repent and move back towards God. Guilt is a good thing. Um, and God cleanses it, forgives it, we move on. Shame is, is, a, is a bad thing that the Bible says leads to death. And here's the trick. It's hard to tell the difference. So it's a good thing to feel guilty, be forgiven, move on. But here's what I'm observing in my life and in your lives. We, we goof up on the move on thing. And if you can't move on, it's not guilt, it's shame. Because the cross took it all, right? That's why you can move on. So, let's think about this a little bit. Men and women, I think, deal with shame differently. And this would be an interesting conversation with you at dinner or in your small group. I don't think men talk as much about shame. I imagine that maybe most of the women knew who Brene Brown was. I suspect most of the men don't. Um, we, we approach this differently. Uh, someone told me the story. There's a Bible teacher, Beth Moore, a very popular Bible teacher, and she tells a story about men and women looking in the mirror. I don't know if I'd told this before, but this isn't my story. But she says, you know, a lady will look in the mirror and immediately see, like, every flaw possible in her hair, in her body, in her makeup, in her eyes. A man will look at the mirror, you know, pot belly, receding hairline, just, you know. I'm more like Brad Pitt than ever, you know. <laughs> Ryan Gosling's got nothing on me. You know, we, we just tend to deal with it differently. But I think men still deal with shame. But I think it comes out in different ways. Uh, sources of shame. A sense of not being or doing enough. That I'm just not the mom that I was supposed to be. I'm, I'm not doing in my career what I thought I was going to do. Uh, past wounds, 
that we haven't healed from, past failures. Uh, it's interesting in doing dream work and learning more about dreams. And one of the things that often happens in dreams is the dream will be set at a certain period in your life. There'll be a memory or a detail from something that happened, you know, like when you were 14 or 18 or something like that. And it's interesting, what often seems to be happening is that's when you got stuck in shame. And, and, and the shame has not gone. Uh, a sense of being competitive and comparing. You know, I was, I was talking with David Leach this week, and um, David had just had this great trip out to Colorado. Uh, a friend of uh, the Rick Coleman, many of you know him, he takes boys out and their dads in this great camp in Colorado. And I did it five years ago with my son, just tremendous experience. And David had had the experience, and then he said, you know, and then afterwards, I took both boys and we hiked five 14ers, and it was awesome. And I thought, I didn't. (laughs) I was tired and I went home. (laughs) And even as he is talking to me, this this sidetrack goes on in my head. I'm trying to listen. I'm sorry, David. Uh, I'll I'll do do better next time. And I'm trying to listen to him and I'm thinking, how many times did you not take Hunter hiking? You know, you really let Hunter down. You really weren't as good of a father as you could have been. All the while, I'm trying to listen to David, and I've got this whole conversation going on in my head. And I, I went home and texted Hunter, we're going hiking next summer. But it, 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 I'm just showing you how shame creeps in as we compare ourselves to each other, not being masculine enough, not being feminine enough, uh, desires that we have that we feel are shameful. Uh, of course, the number one thing that Christians seem to feel ashamed about is sexuality and desires related to that and, and areas of failure in that. And Okay, okay, the Bible talks a lot about that, but it's just interesting to me that we seem so obsessed about sexual sin that we just forget like everything else. And I'm not, I'm not sure that that's what God wants. I mean, there's as many verses in Scripture about being greedy and not using your money well as there are about sexual sin. I, I haven't had anybody in my office this year saying, you know, I'm just greedy. <laughs> Never, you know? You know, but sexual sin every day, you know? <laughs> it's like we just, we just kind of miss it. You know, a lot of shame happens over things that happen to us, you know, like being rejected. Um, you know, you're, you're dating somebody, you think you're going to marry them, doesn't work out. You know, really, that's one of the most painful things in the world, right? You give your heart to somebody, and, and they say no. Well, that's a very shameful thing. And a lot of times it comes out, you know, in, in, in inadvertent ways, maybe. I, as Nate was praying, I was thinking, what is it like... You know, if I'm a police officer and, and I get up in the morning and I kiss my kids goodbye and I'm watching all this go on and I'm reading stories about 911 calls that really are ambushes and how the snipers now are aiming at my head and they're better shots because they've all been in Iraq and I'm wondering if I'm going to come back and see my kid and, I, uh, and somebody spits on me. Or if I'm a, a, a black man and I walk into a, a store and somebody follows me or, you know, we could just spin this out. Sometimes I think we even put shame on people in, in a, not intending to. You know, one of the little guys that I, I take to swim, we give food to once a week, and I 
Bonnie helps with that, and the, the bags are in the back of my car. And the other night, I was, I was dropping him off, and I said, hey, buddy, the bag's in your back. And he goes, no, man, no, man. I said, no, 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 it's in the back. He says, no, man. And then I looked on his porch, and there was a relative on the porch. And <clears throat> that's why this stuff is so doggone hard. You think you're helping, and you wind up hurting people. He didn't want to be shamed by receiving a food bag with a relative on the porch. Now, there's a religious shame, too, and, and I, wish, I wish I understood this more. I wish we could press into this more. And I, I don't know quite how to describe this because it's a spirituality where the most holy thing you can do is hate yourself. Maybe I haven't said that right. But there's a kind of spirituality where self-hatred is elevated as the most godly thing you can, can do. And that's real close to biblical conviction, right? Because, I mean, there are parts of our hearts that we should despise and turn from. And, but, but, but a lot of times it seems like the church has created a way of toxically shaming us about legitimate things while not teaching us to repent over the things that really grieve the heart of God. Um, Well, if in verse 7, David as the king, you know, reaches out to Mephibosheth and heals his shame, and I thought we might just spend a moment there the first thing he says is, uh, I will rest- restore you to the land. You're noticing that I've goofed up my... Next time I'll use my notebook here. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> I know, Daryl didn't use a note last week. I heard all about it. Um, <laughs> I'm not ashamed of my notes, okay? All right. First thing he says is, I will show you kindness. And it's the Hebrew word chesed. It means mercy that's related to the covenant. And you remember that great story in Genesis 15 where God says, Abram, you and I are going to make a covenant, except for the trick is you're not a part of it. And he has them kill an animal and they walk between it, but only God walks between it. And the point is, I'm responsible for this deal. So that's what David is doing here. He's saying, based on the covenant I made with with your father, I'm just going to love you. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. I'm just doing it. Kind of get over it. That is really hard for us to to embrace. I I, I was talking about this with a friend who grew up in a particular denomination that was very devout, but also, he would say, legalistic focused a lot on the Ten Commandments. And he talked about a time in his life when he just realized he was not keeping the Ten Commandments. And this is a very devout, earnest man. And it was really tearing him up. And he kept wondering, how can I do this better? And so he, this was a number of years ago. He goes over to Gatlinburg to hear a minister named John Stott. And a lot of you younger folks probably don't know that name, but he was a wonderful British preacher of the gospel for the last half of the 20th century. How he wound up in Gatlinburg, I don't know. I don't know if it, maybe he had a putt-putt fetish or something. I don't know. But um, 
It was a long weekend. I'm a little loose tonight. I'll try to, I'll try to hold it in here. I just don't know why anyone would go to Gatlinburg. But so he goes up to Dr. Stott and he said, and he pulls out the Ten Commandments and he says, "Help me here. I'm going. I can't do this. I can't do this." And and Dr. Stott said, "Well, where do they begin? Cite them off." And my my friend just cites them all off. He says, "You didn't start at the right place." He said, you forgot the verse before it. And if you've ever noticed in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments don't begin with thou shalt. The Ten Commandments begin with I called called you out of Egypt. Because I love you and have chosen you and have accepted you and embraced you and you're mine Let me tell you how you should live. The Ten Commandments aren't how you earn your way to God. They're just a reflection of how people under grace live. So the first thing we have to do is kind of embrace this covenant mercy. This rich covenant mercy. Well, then the next thing that happens is that God, or the king in this case, uh, restores his land and gives him resources for life. I was thinking about this. There's a kind of a perverse relationship between shame and scarcity. Um, I don't know. I'm not that familiar with other cultures. Maybe it's just America. I I know I was in Vietnam once, and just the poorest of the poor, and the the people that I was with just seemed so at peace and content, and they had nothing. But in America, I noticed this as I walk with folks in vulnerable communities, there's such a shame with poverty. There's a shame of lack of resources. Uh, There's a shame of not being able to provide. And I think what happens here is... um, he invites him into the family, and he, you know, he says, I'll take care of it now. You're mine. And that's what he said to us, right? Galatians 4, we're all adopted sons and daughters. We're heirs, all the resources we need, the lilies of the field, God's got it covered. For a man, I know, and maybe for a woman, but for a man, being out of work, it's just one of the most shameful things you can experience. Being underemployed, it's just one of the most shameful things you can experience. Why? Because in our culture, I'm responsible for my provision. If I'm not providing, I should be ashamed. It's not the gospel. That's not the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom is not a scarcity mentality. It's an abundance mentality. And it's being a son or a daughter of a provider king. So part of healing from shame is, 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 is realizing I'm not the provider anymore. It, it's really not up to me. It, it's not up to how early I get up tomorrow morning or how good my marketing plan is or if I get the right job. Or, it's not up to me. The king, it's up to him. Well, the last thing is that David says, you shall eat at my table always. It's a beautiful picture there. He's adopted into the royal family. There's such a such a neat concept there, and this is something I really want for us as a little community. 
that one of the ways you, you heal from shame is you become a part of a community that's been reconciled to God that treats one another in a gracious way. That's, by the way, the book of Ephesians. Lindsay Bell um, sent me a quote from a movie called Call the Midwives. It's not one that I've seen. Um, it's a TV show. Haven't seen that either. But um, uh, the, the, the title just doesn't grab me. But I, um, this is a great quote that comes from the show. Lindsay, Lindsay sent it. Shame is born in public and lived out secretly. Shame is born in public and lived out secretly. What is not seen cannot be scrubbed away. But so much can be made bearable by love, by cherishing what is and not condemning fault or flaw, by never locking doors, by keeping hearts open and holding each other forever in the light. I don't know what the show's about, but that's the church. It's supposed to be the church. We had something happen at the retreat, and I asked Chantel if I could share this, and I'm just going to share the broad outline, but there was a moment where we were sharing about something, and, and, and Chantel, um, young lady over in the corner there, um, just gave us the gift of, of being real honest about what it's like to be black and be in our church. And uh, it was interesting. It first kind of got off track. Um, and uh, there was a little bit of feedback that, gosh, this makes me exhausted to hear this. And she heard, I share for five minutes what it's like to be 25 years in my skin and you're so exhausted you can't hear me. And at that moment, very holy moment, there was a fork. And it could have gone where it usually goes, White folks back in the room, I just don't, I don't get this. Chantel, the only black lady there, alone in the room, they don't get it. But she made a very powerful choice and went back. And the people in the little group went back and moved towards, towards each other. And I doubt that we fully understand each other, but the misunderstandings were cleared up and it was the most powerful moment I've ever had in my life with someone from another color. And we, we ended with communion. And I think we tasted a little bit there the way the, the community is supposed to heal our shame. I, I really, that's why I'm so hopeful about collaborative communication, which is a horrible word and we should rename it. But um, whatever it is, I think it's about becoming a community that heals shame. Two final thoughts. Uh, the first final thought is on shame and liminal spaces. I keep bumping into this idea of liminal spaces. Uh, here's a definition. A liminal space is a unique spiritual position where human beings hate to be, but where the biblical God is always leading them. It is when you have left the tried and true but have not yet been able to replace it with anything else. 
It is when you are finally out of the way. It is when you are between your old comfort zone and any possible new answer. If you are not trained in how to hold anxiety, how to live with ambiguity, how to entrust and wait, you will run. Anything to flee this terrible cloud of unknowing. Maybe just the people I have the privilege of talking with, and I don't want to overgeneralize, but a lot of you, a lot of us, seem to be invited into a liminal space right now, kind of leaving something behind, moving to something new. And that's terrifying. And I think what often happens when we, when we get out of that space, when we kind of leave Egypt and follow the cloud, shame kicks in. And we go back to Egypt. And we miss the opportunity of moving into whatever new God has for us. I was, I was sitting at dinner last night with one of the people at the retreat, and I said, what you learning? It's no fun to have dinner with me. I always do that. But she she pulled out her phone and she said, I'll tell you. Let me read you this poem. It's by a lady named Sarah Harvey. It's called Unfurl Your Aching Wings and Soar. Change rises up like molten lava in your throat, so hot and fierce, so dangerous and beautiful, you can't swallow it down anymore. You can't fight it anymore. You can't lie to yourself anymore. Life pushing you forward. Sighing deeply, look down at damp emerald grass. You see that your legs are paralyzed, glued in place, shaking with icy cold currents of fear. They don't move. They can't move. You can't move. You're stuck. In an awkward fold of time between post and future, you're no longer willing to be who you need to be, but you've soared to be who you, but you're scared to be who you really are. Hunching over, you sob in desperate agony until you're hot and breathless, sweaty with frustration, ready to just give up. But then you hear your heart beating. She beats slowly at first, then wildly. She sounds so sure of herself, and for one tiny stardust lay second, you believe, you believe in yourself. You take a skip, a risk, a leap. You open up just a little bit, and magic happens. Incandescent sparks fly from your body in all directions. Fireworks of sacred bright red intensity. This is what you've been waiting lifetimes for. Savor it. In this moment of pure spun bravery, you surrender to the harsh pulls of life. No longer stuck in place, clarity trickles in like rain. You see that staying numb and small and quietly miserable is no longer an option. You see that tying back those precious wings that burn with longing for flight is no longer an option. Life is pushing you forward. Let it. When change grabs you by the throat and breathes fire down your neck, melting every resistance, pour of your exhausted being, welcome it. Swallow your fears and let them become rubies, guiding you like red flashlights through the dark coves of your heart. 
And when you're ready, believe. Believe in yourself. Unfurl your aching wings. Look to the sapphire sky. Feel your heart's wild electric beats and soar, beautiful soul. Soar, soar, soar. That's what God wants for you, beloved. He wants you to soar. He doesn't want you stuck. Why do we stay stuck? Shame. The other thought. Uh, comes from a personal experience. There was a point in my life about 14 years ago where I felt like I'd really, not felt like, I had really messed some things up. And I was very ashamed. Felt like I'd squandered an opportunity. And about that time, um, my stomach just got all tore up. And went through all the things with uh, IBS and medicines and diet and all that. Thankfully, there's been a lot of healing since then. But one of the things that I, I learned at that time was shame is poisonous. And it affects your gut. It just spills... You know, in the Bible, the bowels are the seat of the emotions. It just spills into your gut. So I just wanted to mention that as well, that that's something to pray about if you're having stomach problems. It might be related to shame. Let's pray as we close.